You're listening to the Player Layer Podcast. My name is Ivan Alexiev, and I'm very happy to have with me Sandy Peterson today. Uh, Sandy has been a game designer. He's one of the very few people who can actually say he's been a game designer all his life because he has done RPGs, he's done video games, he's currently doing mostly board games, um, and he started out in the 80s with um, game w- working with Chaosium, working on um, his RPGs, uh, Call of Cthulhu, later on Ghostbusters. Uh, then he got into video games, he worked on the very popular and amazing Age of Empires series, as well as um, the Doom uh, games, and yeah, he just, <laughs> this man has so much uh, knowledge, and it was awesome to talk with him. Uh, I was also happy that I got some help from Nikola Petrov, who is a great friend and is in currently in the video game industry, and we both picked Sandy's uh, brain, and we're we were very happy to do so. Uh, so I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening and enjoy. I want to go clear back to when I got started in games. It would be, uh, I can remember being a kid in grammar school in third grade, I was eight years old, and staying in from recess playtime so I could play Clue with uh, with some friends. Now, I usually went to recess, but every once in a while, I'd stay in and we play Stratego or some other game, so I always liked games. So I've always liked games in... Eventually, I realized that those that games like Clue and Stratego were, like, sucked. Um, <laughs> so... When I was uh, about nine, my dad got a game called Gettysburg. It was the 120, 100th anniversary of the Civil War. And he's interested in the Civil War, so we got a game about it. And immediately the rules were lost. So all I had was a box with some pieces and a map board. And I have no idea how to play the game. So I just, like, I was fascinated by the game and, and would lay out the pieces and couldn't figure out what to do with it. When I was 12, I was at a store in a nearby town, and lo and behold, there was a copy of that game, Gettysburg, for sale. And I begged and pleaded and promised to do chores, and my dad bought it for me. So I did my chores, uh, and that was kind of the start. I got I, Over time, I got more. No, those days, I, I just called them war games, because they were mostly about some battle. You know, Blitzkrieg. Um, Axis uh, and Allies. Leader, Axis and Allies. Oh, I didn't, well, Axis and Allies didn't exist. Oh. Axis and Allies came around in the 80s, so that was... Hmm in the 60s so there was no axis and allies uh there's just there's just war games with like little cardboard counters made by avalon hill and there was another company did them too called uh, uh spi but i didn't know about them so i i got the games i played with my friends they they stressed my brain when 1970 later on i found out about other war games in 1974 i found out about dungeons and dragons and played that with my friends so I was one. I was an early adopter because that's the year it came out, you know. Um, and then uh, when I was in graduate school in California, I'd played enough role playing games that I and a friend had encouraged me to to write to Chaosium Incorporated, which made one of my favorite role playing games, RuneQuest. So I did, and I started doing some things for them freelance to help support my family while I went to graduate school, and that eventually became my career and I dropped out of graduate school, which I'm not recommending to anyone. It happened to sort of work for me, but I know it doesn't usually. And my only full-time job I've ever had as an adult has been as a game designer. So I, my guess is that's a weird uh, life, but I don't have anything to compare it to. So what sort of things did you start out with in Chaosium? Like what sort of I did, I did like uh, cults for the game RuneQuest or adventures or backgrounds. I did a book of monsters called The Gateway Bestiary, which was so awesome that the uh, they misspelled the name of the co- of the game RuneQuest right on the front cover. So that was great. Um, <laughs> that was not my doing. That was the artist Rick Becker. But uh, and then eventually they uh, what got me to do my full actual game instead of just expansions of stuff was. Um, I suggested is that the Chaosium got me to do the um, wanted me to do the Call of Cthulhu game, uh, the a game based on Lovecraft, a full on role playing game. So that was my first actual game, and it was and I expected it to be this obscure, minor cult game that like 
the two thousand other people who had ever read Lovecraft in the entire world would, might might enjoy. And then it became this this kind of a big deal. It was the first horror game, uh, and it was the first game about Lovecraft. And uh, and I guess it struck a nerve, and uh, people really liked it. And it's still around, which I would never. I thought it'd be like one, maybe two print runs tops. Uh, but I have a I have a um, a history of underestimating how games will do. Like when I was doing uh, my my most recent game that founded my current company, Cthulhu Wars, I thought it would sell. I would put it on Kickstarter. I would get like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars if I'm lucky, and that would help support me when I went on to a career doing games and iPhones or something. And instead, it got well over a million and. Uh, even though my partner sucked most of the money out of the uh, Kickstarter campaign, I was able to use the remainder to found my current company, and you know there we are. As a side effect, Lovecraft went from being an obscure little red author. Literally every single person I knew who'd heard about Lovecraft when I was growing up heard about them because I told them about Lovecraft. <laughs> um, I never met anyone else who'd found Lovecraft on their own. Um, but now people all over the world—they always tell me, "Oh, I know about Lovecraft because I played your game." Uh, I had the same thing happen when I was working on Age of Empires. They would say, oh, I want, I got a good score on my test at school because I learned about the Hittites by playing Age of Empires. And I was like, okay, great, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, we did, I didn't do the games to be educational, but uh, but I guess they had, they had that side effect. Uh, I, I remember when, when I was a kid, because, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up in the, playing, like, 90s computer games. And for me, like mythology from like heroes of might and magic three and like and with age of empires so so many things and just like i, I think that's a side effect it, when you get called, uh, uh, age of mythology so age of mythology that's that's right yeah uh i remember that one as well well our um, principle in design to bring it to your favorite topic uh, is i did a lot of games where there's historical facts or mythological tr things or stuff like that Always, always, we never did this to educate people. We did it because we thought learning things and history was fun. And so we thought having, for example, the Sioux Indians in Age of Empires 3 would be, and knowing, learning a little bit about how they worked, that they had dog soldiers and stuff, would be fun for the players. So we mm -hmm. did have educational things, but it was all in the service of making it more fun, not of, of, um, didactically belaboring a point uh, i feel like I, I haven't really seen the opposite work as well when people go out to try and make an educational game but they don't really focus as much on um the the fun side or like it, i feel like it, it very rarely has worked um one has I've to seen. go for education will then come it also it especially doesn't work when the guy is trying to make some kind of uh political or social point i feel but uh i let that come out of the games too if they mm -hmm. if i want you know, I mean, if I have I have certain I have social and political beliefs, but I don't say I'm going to teach this game so everyone will know how I feel about capitalism. Instead, I'll just play the game, and you know, my beliefs might be in there somewhere. But it's, they do, the goal is to be fun. It's got to be the game first. No one wants to play a game because it's because it taught them something. You know, if I, if you want, if they want to learn something, there's way better ways to learn it than playing a game. I will say that one of the few bad reviews I got for Cthulhu War was a guy that said well usually when i got a bad review for it, it it was they said it's a good game but it costs a lot of money which you know is not a secret it's not like this is a hidden flaw of the game uh but this guy said it's bad he had never played it by the way this bad review he just like it, on principle it was bad and his reason was because the cthulhu mythos is overdone and i kind of i kind of can see his point it's way overdone when you have games about like racing cars with Cthulhu or whatever. But I also felt that since I'm the person who actually did the first Lovecraft game, that I should, you know, get a pass on doing more of them. But, uh... <laughs> well, yeah, you're yeah. probably the world's biggest authority on the Cthulhu mythos right now because, uh, you know, you've done the games, but you've also expanded the lore. And actually, a lot of things that people... You say, yeah, Lovecraft is public domain, and now everybody knows, knows Lovecraft, but... Actually, some of the things that we know came from you. So, yes. how did yes, this I had happen? Make, well, Lovecraft was trying to do games, so I had to make up lots of stuff. And some of the stuff people have decided, have, have thought was actually from Lovecraft. So I've gone on Lovecraft wikis, and, it's, and it has monsters I created out of, that have no reference in Lovecraft. And they just say, oh, this is, this is from Lovecraft's Dreamlands. I say, well, you know, it's from Sandy Peterson's 
book on the Dreamlands based on Lovecraft, but but uh, but you know that's fine, whatever. You know, I, I I'm kind of different. I try to base everything on some on some relationship with with Lovecraft, you know. But uh, so it has a root there. But yeah, I've had I've made up stuff. So I guess I've expanded it. And, but but I think I don't feel too guilty about that. I don't. I shouldn't anyway, because Lovecraft, of course, constantly wanted people to expand his mythos. So he was on board with that idea. And also because um, you know, I have different needs than uh, than Lovecraft does. I I'm. Uh, you know, I need to codify things uh, so people can play it. Just watching your YouTube channel, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, for oh, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> um, I noticed something that I've talked with again with with plenty of designers about, but you you um, it was really interesting for me to to see you talk about it as well, and that was uh, kind of your dreams seeping into into design and kind of having that oh, like yeah. most of my game design is not from a dream I had. I just like work on the game and make it and make it go. Um, there's, there's like, there's like three sources of ideas for my games and ideas are not the most important part of game design by any means. It's actually implementation. Ideas are a dime a dozen, you know, but the concepts that come through for me, there is uh, what I would call intellect where I'm thinking about it and planning it and like analyzing things. And every designer does that. I'm, you know, how else can you do games? Right. And every game design I do has to use some of that. And then there is what I would call um, like a like a spiritual thing, and and this has not happened very often. But there's a few games where somehow it just flowed, and and worked. Like Cthulhu Wars is one of those. I knew I had to do Cthulhu Wars; it was important. And then it 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 was like a swift, fast, easy flowing game, which just came together really fast. In fact, so quickly that I that I had put it together and I had a copy and I was playing it with my with my friends. They my first playtest group is my buddies that play other games with me. I said, let's play this new game, Cthulhu Wars. So they're playing it and one of them turned to me this first time they played it and they said, How long have you been working on this game? And I didn't want to admit that I had started that week. So I said, Oh, you know, a couple months. And he said, it seems really polished. And I was like, whoa. So that has never happened before. That didn't happen very often, but that's, I don't know where that comes from. So I think it was inspiration, but the, but the third source is maybe my id, my dark underbelly. And this is based on the fact that I have a lot, and it's always, almost always comes from nightmares. I have a lot of nightmares, uh, probably because I read a lot of horror stories and watch horror movies. So it doesn't make sense. Um, and, and these nightmares, when I'm having the nightmare, they, they're not fun. They're not, I mean, I don't like them during the nightmare, but when I wake up quite often, there's an element in there I can take for a game. And on a very rare occasion, I've had a, I've, because my life, my daily life is doing games a lot. You know how if you're in school, you always have nightmares about making a presentation without your pants or, you know, <laughs> a test you're not prepared for, something like that. So since I'm a game designer, I have dreams about designing games. And sometimes when I'm designing a game in the dream, it, it makes sense and it's coherent and I can use it. And one of the most best examples of that was a couple of years ago, I had a dream in which I was designing a two-player board game about the invasion of the Earth. And this is in my podcast, of course, by an alien I'd made up in, when I was 13 called The Brood. And I've since featured The Brood in um, in a couple of games, some video games, uh, Hyperspeed and Lightspeed. I featured them in my game Hyperspace, which is a board game. And uh, an upcoming game, which isn't out yet, called Starship Captain. So that you know, I've I've kind of codified them anyway. In my dream, I was designing this game where the Brood are invading modern Earth, not futuristic Earth, and the Earth people are trying to get together to fight them. And the Brood have a life cycle where they plant larvae and they grow up and they're doing all this stuff and they mind control the human units. And uh, and all this stuff was happening in the dream. Then when I woke up, I I thought about it, and a couple and a couple months later, I still remember the dream which doesn't always happen with dreams, of course, but this time it did. And I like, you know, I should do that game. So I sat down, I started designing it. And of course, the dream didn't have all the details of design. Like, I knew the human, the humans had different kinds of units, but I didn't know what they were like. I didn't know what the turn structure was. You know, I didn't have stats for things. So I had, to, you know, there was, I remember there was a map of the Earth, but, you know, it was not, I didn't, I don't remember the layout of the, of the cities and things. So I had to build all that. But the concept of the game uh, came was always there because of this dream. And usually when I'm just using my intellect to analyze the game to come up with the concept, it's like a week or two to do it. But this one dream gave me everything I needed to start on the game. And I, I, you know, dreams are like 20, 30 minutes. So that means that in 20, 30 minutes, I got the whole idea for a, for a game, which my waking mind would have taken a week 
or two weeks to produce, which means I guess I'm a lot more productive when I'm asleep. So yeah, what what does your process usually look like? My process for creating the game is very specific. What I do is, well, one of the things is that although obviously you have to have a, a system, I start really early with the uh, the theme. The theme is really important to me. So Cthulhu Wars, I don't know if you've played it, but it's like heavily steeped in the theme. Call of Cthulhu is heavily steeped in the theme. Um, God's War is is filled. They, they, I, 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 the theme is really, really important to me. Um, so the theme starts off. So for example, unlike some designers, when I'm when I'm doing a faction for a non, I do a lot of asymmetrical games. When I'm doing a faction for an asymmetrical game, I don't start by having a generic faction and then modifying it multiple times to make the other ones. I, each faction is is its own baby from the beginning. So I don't even worry about if it's balanced. So I'll say, okay, this is the faction of the spider monsters. And what would spider monsters do? Well, they need to have webs and they need to spawn lots of little baby spiders. And they need to they need to be interested in killing other things just and storing their their food right whatever it is you know I just made that up on top of my head but and that's what I'm thinking about before them and then then I oh now we're gonna have these other the, the the rabbit people well the rabbit people obviously can breed really fast they don't care if they get killed because rabbits don't really try to defend each other and so I and then 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 after I've designed all the factions then I will try to balance them against each other. That's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is I try to get a workable prototype as soon as possible. That's one of the reasons I was playing Cthulhu Wars less than a week after I designed it. I get that working prototype out there and I playtest the bejesus out of it and and then make modifications. And I playtest again and I make modifications. And I watch all the playtests. I don't do I do hardly any blind playtesting mm-hmm. uh, until later in the much later in the process. Blind playtesting yep. has not proven I know some designers swear by it, and it probably works for them. It has not worked for me very much. Yeah, I, th- I think very few exceptions. I think I think blind blind testing is more for the rulebook than it is for like game gameplay things, right? Because what you're testing well, is how because I, I have people read over the rulebook. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't consider that play testing exactly. I mean, I guess I, I guess they sh- they should really be trying to play the game anyway. Yeah, but uh, but I like like for example when I worked on Ensemble Studios when we were doing Age of Empires, the critical thing was we'd get the game up there, a really early version, to, to, to play test right away. And this is not the most efficient way to do a video game, okay? To, to have a version that you can play really early, then constantly iterate on it. That actually probably slowed down our games by at least a year, okay? But the thing is that we have the game early, we're playing it and playing it and playing it. And the advantage of this is that we know early on that the game is fun because we're seeing people play it and they know it's fun. We had one game, Age of Empires 3, in fact, when we first got it up for playtest, it was not fun. And that really bothered us. And we were, we were doing things with that game for, I think, a year? And it still, and finally it became fun. We said, okay, it's fun now. Keep this. And then and then we then we we uh, balanced it after that. But, uh, but the other games you know, were fun earlier. Age of Empires 3 took longer to be fun. But we know it's fun, which which if you go by the conventional way of doing games, the playtesting is kind of at the end, then you don't, or the version comes halfway through, then you don't like you might find out it's not fun too late in the process, and that yeah. sucks. And related yeah. to that, uh, how about rulebooks? Like, when do you actually start working on the rulebook for a new game? Because this is another aspect that a lot of designers just leave for last or for the blind playtest or something. Well, and- I'm kind of. I do it right away, and this might also slow down my process because what because one of the first things I do is uh, when I'm starting to design the game. One of the ways I'll design it, I'll get the rule book. I'll start with the rule book, and I'll say, okay, what's the turn structure? And I'll write it in, and then I'll uh, do some game design. Then I'll go back to the rule book and go to the do game design, and then back to the rule book. And and I always have the rule book following what I'm doing, and um and so and so actually codifying the rule book, doing things like, oh yeah, I have to have a map. What's the purpose of the map? And I'll think of, or if I have to have a map, not all games have maps, obviously. But uh, if I have to have a map, what, how does it work? And so the rule book also helps me organize my thoughts in addition to then I have a rule book in case I'm hit by a truck and my assistant designer has to take over. Yeah. Um, so now my rule book is not necessarily super well written. I used to think they were great. And my team tells me that I am, uh, they're not great, which is fine because I have uh, editors now to look over it and they can make it great in my absence. Yeah, I just can... give them, but they have the rules for me. 
Exactly. You can always polish something later and, uh, you know, edit it, make it, make it better, but it's very important to create it early. And it's interesting how in video game design, you always start with, with the game design doc because you don't have anything until you code it, until you build it. But in board games, a lot of people will actually build their prototypes. They really expand on them and then they write the books and, and then they find the problems. Oh, yeah. Probably I don't do that because I did so much. Well, be, because the two, the two types of games I did before I went into board games was when I was at Chaosium, I did role-playing games. And you literally only have a rule book in a role-playing game. There's no other thing to design. That's correct. Right? Yeah. You have to design a character sheet and you have to have rules with stats and, and what the skills do. So, you, so you're stuck with rule book. And then after I finished doing at Chaosium, I went on to do video games. And of course, video games, the first thing you do, because you have to, is a game is, a, is like a white, we used to call it a white paper. You know, but it's like a it's like a a summary of uh, of what the game does. So in video games, the first thing you do is is write down what the game does, kind of like a rule book. It can be more or less detailed, but it gets more detailed over time. And so now that I'm doing board games, I just follow the same same procedure. Just like just like what I was doing, Age of Empires and and Doom in those games. First thing I did was play test, play test, play test. And so now that I am doing board games, I'm I'm following the exact same the exact same model that I learned in video games. Um, I even put video game features in my board games, you know, like uh, uh, in, in Cthulhu Wars, there's a thing that you there's the spell books you can get, but they're, but you earn them just like video game achievements. You achieve some tasks, then you get the reward, and then you have it forever, even if even if whatever task you did goes away. Like if you had to have a city in, in the Arctic and you, you get it, then you get the, the reward. Even if you lose that city, you keep the reward because it's it's an achievement. So, you know. I guess video games have, to an extent, informed my board game design. I mean, I try not to leave put in the bad parts of video games into board games, but uh... it, it, it's a slippery slope, and uh, some, sometimes it's really cool when something works. Like right now, I'm playing role player adventures, where you can really—I don't know if you've—you can really see same like, like, again that the designer um, Keith was in video games before that because of the yeah. sort of narrative uh, stuff, and it's really cool when it when it works. It's it's awesome. What do you think are all the video games that that mimic tabletop stuff, right? Mm. You, you, you know, like um, uh, what's the one, what's the one by uh, Blizzard that, em, that emulates a, uh, a a collectible card game? You know what I'm talking Hearthstone? about? Hearthstone. Hearthstone. Hearthstone is totally a, a collectible card game, right? And it very closely imitates it. So, uh, and there's other copy, the other things yeah, like Slay that. the Spire as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Slay the Spire. Yeah, Slay the Spire is another example of collectible art. So they're just imitating those collectible games. And, uh, and they, but there's other games they imitate besides that. There's area movement and stuff. And there's, you know, there's uh, Europa Universalis, I think it's called, which was very much like a board war game. So that, so all the games kind of go back and forth and influence yeah. each other. I, I happen to have moved from video games to board games. So naturally, I'm showing video games in my board games. If I ever went back to video games, which I think there is approximately a 0% chance I will do, I probably use board game elements in it. Wow, you just answered one of my questions, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's interesting how actually a lot of uh, younger designers grew up exclusively on video games and uh, their their language uh, always revolves around video games, but now they're discovering board games, they're deep in the hobby, and it's interesting how people with uh, video game perspective actually get in the board gaming world and, and they design some very interesting things. So this is also happening now. So I guess a complete role reversal. To an extent with the designers, I don't. It doesn't seem to be happening with the players very much. We, I've twice my company, my current company, has attempted to do a board game based on a video game, and uh, once it was a kind of a half like a lukewarm failure. The other times it was a catastrophic failure. So I am. Uh, I don't think that people who play video games are. They don't seem to be interested. I think people that play board games play video games, but I don't think people that play video games are necessarily interested in board games at all. So we have we learned our you know we we're smart enough to learn our lesson, and so, uh, and and the reason I would not go back, to, I the only reason I would go back to video games ever is if I absolutely had to for financial necessity, because my current board game company went belly up and flopped, and I needed something to get more retirement funds before I could retire. And then I would go and do video games for, for a while. 
But uh, the thing is, video games that that I do not miss are that it takes a lot longer to do a game than a tabletop game, and that you and that you have to work with a huge, huge team to do it. Like I can do a tabletop game, and it can be like me and the artists and a producer and maybe an assistant game designer. It's not it's not that many guys, right? My playtesters. But a video game is a team. Well, I mean, even the smallest video game I ever worked on, which is probably the ones back in uh, 1990. There was uh, one or two programmers, one or two artists, you know, a producer. It was, you know, there was, a, but now those te- the teams are like, uh, you know, five to 10 to 25 to 30 people sometimes and bigger, obviously hundreds for, in some cases. And uh, there's just so many people to wrangle that uh, the game becomes kind of a, a group think. And, uh, and it's, you can still do a game that way. And I did lots of games that way. And I don't regret doing those games, but I kind of like, not being responsible for anyone's failures but my own. Right. And uh, so you don't enjoy the process of making video games as much, but do you still play lots of video games? Do you enjoy... Playing them is totally different from designing them. Of course. I mean, people will, <laughs> they find that I'm a game designer, and the, and the first assumption people often take is, oh, you play games all the time. And I say, well, I mean, I do play games probably more than the average person, but playing a game is not the same as designing the game just like eating a meal is not the same as being a chef and cooking the meal it's not the same kind of pleasure i mean it's better to design a game than i guess something that hurts people like being a lawyer or a politician but uh but you know there's part there's aspects of game design that aren't fun and uh or aren't as fun and uh i still love my job but i don't have, like i said i have no other jobs to compare it to mm-hmm. I mean, no. I have my jobs I had before I became a game designer as like part-time things, working in a pet store, working at a gas station. I know it's better than those. <laughs> <laughs> What about now? Now, now that you have your own like publishing company and that you're not, um, I, I, I again, one of your awesome videos about uh, not having to kind of deal with the man, which I think is <laughs> kind of. Hey, kind man of was he supported my family and, ca- and gave me a salary for many, many years. But I am kind of glad to not have the man over me anymore. Um, and, uh, it's just nice to be my, pick my own projects during my years in game design from 1980 through, uh, 2013, um, I designed dozens and dozens of projects and exactly one project was entirely my own idea. That was the game Lightspeed. Everything else, some guy said now you must do this game and i didn't object to that that's fine you know it's not i'm, I'm not like a creative prima donna who must have his own way and everything and and when i was assigned to do a game like they would say you must now do um uh, uh age of empires 2 you know then I, then i i would make that my own as much as i could because the skies and suits and ties who assigned me to do it they have no idea how to design it so i'm able to find all the things that are fun about it and do them But it wasn't originally my idea. But Cthulhu Wars was all mine. And Hyperspace, which I recently finished and is not quite out yet, is all mine. And uh, The God's War is is uh, 90% mine. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I, you know, it's kind of nice to have to, to get my own things out there and see, you know, have someone that's actually a game designer invent my games instead of someone that has, has a MBA, which yeah. is how most games are made. Yeah. And speaking of getting your stuff out there, I recently read an article that Call of Cthulhu apparently is bigger than Dungeons and Dragons in Japan. Do you know how that yeah. happens? That's very fascinating to me. Okay, so uh, Call of, I've been to Japan, actually, and Call of Cthulhu is, first, it's bigger than Dungeons and Dragons in Japan. It is the biggest role-playing game in Japan by a pretty big margin. Second, unlike the, in fact, there are more copies of Call of Cthulhu sold in Japan than in the rest of the world combined. Wow. It's that big in Japan. And it's not small elsewhere. I mean, if you play role-playing games, you've heard of Call of Cthulhu. Of course. Right? As the legend of the, oh yeah, this is the game you get killed in, or whatever they want to say, right? <laughs> But they've heard of it, right? So it's well-known. Japan is the number one game. Um, and um, so, as you know, role-playing games, tabletop rolling games are, just like video games, are by and large a male experience. Okay, most role players are men. If you if you get a whole bunch of guys playing Dungeons and Dragons and you go count them up, you will find usually 85-90% of them are guys. Okay? 
And I don't think they're trying to keep girls out. It's not like a boys club. It's just like the, the, the fun of getting a sword and killing a dragon and getting money and getting a better sword and killing a bigger dragon. I don't, I don't think that appeals as much to, to, to most women, right? They're like, what's the interest in that? But Call of Cthulhu has always had a higher percentage of women than, than Dungeons of the Dragons. Usually Call of Cthulhu is like 25, 30%. It's still not a majority, but more, I think, and I think the reason they like it more is because it's not like you don't want to go fight the monster because it will eat you because it's a werewolf or something. You, you want to, there's more exploring and interacting and using your brains. And women like scary, they, they like horror movies and scary things, you know, so that doesn't, that's fine with them. Now in Japan, because they had nothing, no other role playing, um, most players of Call of Cthulhu come from D&D, right? Because you first you learn role playing through the most obvious way of doing it, then you move on to the to the more specialty products like Call of Cthulhu. Um, but in Japan, there was no gatekeeper of D and D. It was just Call of Cthulhu was the original game. So in Japan, a majority of the players, like seventy percent of them, are women. That's crazy. So so the average Call of Cthulhu player in the world is an eighteen to thirty five year old Japanese woman. And what I now now ArcLight, who do, who has the Call of Cthulhu license in Japan, are are pretty smart. They, I was at a convention of theirs, and um, what they do is they is is Call of Cthulhu is they let anyone that wants to do a Japanese Call of Cthulhu adventure, and the logic is that the game masters always need more adventures, more you know, and that they everyone has to buy the core game anyway, and plus their adventures will still be better, they'll have better illustrations. So at this convention, there was all these rows of tables. You, most of them with a with some girl behind it that was selling her little pamphlet unillustrated of a Call of Cthulhu adventure. Some you know like thirty percent of them are guys because you know thirty percent are men. But they had but they were all selling their little one off adventures. They had me play in a uh, a demonstration game of Call of Cthulhu and all the other players were women. The game master is a woman. I was the only guy. Um, I took my wife and I tried really hard to make her jealous, but I failed. She just left me. So that's how that was. So yeah, Call of Duty is big in Japan, and I could make a joke about Japanese and tentacles and, and scary things, but I think it's just that Japanese like scary things like women in general do, you know? And, well, here's another example uh, from the real world. So I don't know if either of you guys saw the movie Ringu when it came out from Japan. It's called The no. Ring in America. Yeah. Okay, so Ringu comes out, and then it spawns a genre that they call J-horror, because like apparently Japanese horror is different from American horror. I don't know how, but they, but but the thing, the thing that made Ringu unique is found all this new horror stuff is that Ringu was a really scary horror movie and it doesn't have any nudity and it doesn't have any gore but it's super scary and that means that frankly it appeals more to women right they don't want they don't want to go see boobs in a horror movie they don't want they don't care about the gore so much they just want to be scared so j-horror gives them a straight up honest to goodness scare without the things that kind of turn them away from it so J-horror became huge in America, not because it was scarier than our horror, but because girls would go see it. You basically doubled your audience, right? How many girls want to go see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, I love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but, you know, it, I don't, if I, it's a tough sell to get my wife to go. But she'll go see Ringu or The Grudge, you know? And so I think that same thing happened with, with, uh, with Cthulhu. Is that it's horror that appeals to women because it's it's role playing that appeals to women because it's intellectual. I'm not. There could have been other role playing games that would appeal to women, but that that kind of was the early on one for them because they because they started doing uh, Japanese Call of Cthulhu very early in the 80s, and uh, and it took and it took Storm. So, so yeah, it was the perfect storm. Instead of trying to figure out how to appeal to women, they just made something that would appeal to you know that women like horror. Women like using their brains instead of fighting. And here's a game that uses your brain and is horror. Who would have thought? <laughs> kind of like uh, what you said about education. If you make a cool historical game, people will read history, not because it's edutainment right. or, or anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've had people tell me, oh, I had to look up why you did this thing in this game. And, it, there, was, and there was an actual historical thing they could look up that it came from. They said, oh, it came from this. I said, yeah. I didn't. I don't make them out of nowhere. I want people to go back in there and see what I did, because not, I, that entertained them. Yeah, not only that, but they now connect this to an awesome memory because not only now I know stuff about the samurai, but I remember the time when my samurai in game did this and that, and uh, yeah, right. that works uh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, and I'm wondering. Yeah. 
yeah, because you you're talking about demographics, uh, you know, horror is liked by by women and, and and stuff like this. And also, you talk how all of your recent games are entirely your brain children. Uh, it's all your vision. Uh, how do the two connect? Basically, my question is: Do you consider demographics when you design your current games, or do you make a, a game that you would like to play and hope that other people like it as well? I've never considered demographics in any game I've designed. I always just make the game I want to play. And I and my theory is that there will be enough people who are weird like me that will enjoy it. Um, this is what I did with Cthulhu. Where I said this is going to be my ultimate Sandy Peterson game. It's what I did in for Call of Cthulhu. It's what I did for uh, the video games. That, like for example, when we were working on uh, Doom, I did software. So one of the features of Doom was that we were able to to set it up so you could play on a network and you shoot other guys. Now at this time. Uh, no one played games head-to-head. This is 1993. Now, before I went to id Software, I had worked with Dan Button on a game called um, Command HQ, which was, though it had a single-player version, he specifically designed it to go head-to-head. It was, really, it was the first RTS game ever, okay? And and he, and he his logic was that 65% of players of people that had computers owned modems and there's probably higher among game players so people would be able to play this game head to head against each other and he did the game and it was a pretty good game and it sold it did not sell very well partly because of microprose's neanderthal level marketing but also just like people weren't ready to play a game online some people did and they loved it so when we did doom based on this wisdom all of us agreed that nobody was going to play it head to head that was clear So, so, but we were doing a game we wanted to play. And then near the end of it, we said, we need to leave the head to head stuff in because it's fun. Not because anyone will play it. It won't increase the sales, but it'll be fun for us to play it this way. So we left it in. And then it turned out that Doom was in fact the first game to break the barrier for head to head play. And now of course, every game has to have a head to head version. You know, even games that are not really suitable for it. They all have head to head. And it's and Doom is the one that started it. And I'm not saying that do that our genius made that happen. It's possible that the that that it was that people were really ripe to play head to head, and we happened to be the game that was first, and someone else would have done it if we hadn't. But we did. We're the ones that did it. And so you have you have Warcraft people going head to head. Age of Empires are going head to head. Everyone's going head to head. And some game had to be the first, and it happened to be uh, Doom. And we only left it in, like I said, because. Uh, We wanted to play it among ourselves that way. So by by appealing to our own natures, what we wanted to do, we actually made a game that was a lot bigger. That's and amazing advice. You tone down a game or you or you weaken it or you water it down. It's, it's true with, with, with movies too. Think how many times people do something in a movie because they don't want to offend someone. Oh, if we do this, the Chinese audience won't like it or whatever. And it always makes it suckier and less good when they do that. I mean, I'm not saying you, you, that I want to go out and defend the Chinese, but but if you have a, a scene that's strong, you should have it, whatever it is, you know. I feel I feel like a similar thing is happening now with uh, solo in in solo modes and board games, where like it wasn't as big of a thing as be- now because of the pandemic, maybe. Um, mm. But before that, like a game like Mage Knight, for example, had a solo mode, but I think um, I, I I think now it's like you it's much more difficult if you don't have that one player um i get i i i got a lot of uh, a lot of people when i did cthulhu wars in my various combo games they would like complain they would like you would need to do a two player or a one player version i'm like this is not a two player one player game i'm not going to it would be a different game and i'm just going to this is the game it is now i i do co-op games and obviously any co-op game you could do single player right well okay not any you couldn't do hanabi single player even though it's co-op um because there's hidden information but usually you can just like i have a game planet apocalypse it's co-op you can totally play it solo if you want just run two characters um uh, a game like invasion to the brood you could do it by take by by hot seating the game um and that's kind of how i played most of my early solo games when i was growing up i'd like my game of gettysburg that I had when I was 12, it had the Confederates and the Union, and there was two sides. And so I could play the whole game by myself, going back and forth, just trying to see what would happen. I didn't care who won, you know, it was, I guess it wasn't a real game, it was more of a toy I was playing in that case. But, uh, 
So yeah, I know a lot of people. I I, I got flack from people not even a two-player two version of Cthulhu Wars, and I finally did a two-player version of Cthulhu Wars, and I combined the two-player version of Cthulhu Wars with the little travel Cthulhu Wars. So now there is a small Cthulhu Wars, and it's only two-player because why not? And so I kind of satisfied both both needs. Plus, that way it doesn't compete with the big awesome Cthulhu Wars, which people still want to get. I hope. So you you mentioned earlier about playing games versus designing games and how it's two separate things. <laughs> how much do you think, just in, in general, a, a designer should spend um, time playing other other games? Um, or do, do you think it's necessary? Um, I was once at a, uh, a, a, a on a panel with Ken Ralston... Uh, and who who later on designed Oblivion, among other things. You may have known him from that. But though at the time he was doing like tabletop stuff, and with Gary Gygax, and um, they asked and they had they gave us all the question of of what do you uh, what are your inspirations in doing game design? And Ken said, oh, I like to do these other read these other games and do them. And I and I said, yeah, I play other games and really learn from them. And then Gary Gygax said. I never play anyone else's games because I don't want to. I forget the exact words, but I don't want to uh, to wreck the purity of my vision by taint it with some other person's stuff. And Ken and I looked at him; our jaws literally dropped because that was a bald faced lie. Because we know for a fact that Gygax plays other games, and he was just trying to show off. We thought it was really stupid. I mean, I like Gygax, but I thought it was a really dumb thing to say. And we were like. That that's like saying that you'd make a better movie if you'd never seen a movie, so you wouldn't, or yeah. you'd make a better book if you've never read another book. Obviously, that's stupid. How can you improve on the genre unless you know what's there? So you have to play other people's games, and you can see. And this is a podcast, right? Yeah. So you always have to describe to the people what you're seeing. Yeah, it's like a library, <laughs> kind of, except bigger and <laughs> a library. No, I mean like like a, like like a public library, but. <laughs> My game library, see? Huge. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. And, uh, and so I, it's, there's hundreds and hundreds of games here, most of which are not written. In fact, almost none of the games you saw there, possibly none of them are by me, because my games are kept in another area. So these are all other people's games that I get and I buy and I play. Now, I play my own games a lot more, and there's two reasons for that. The first is that I have to playtest my games, and so I have to play them a lot for that purpose. And that's kind of an overlap between design and playing. Um I, and I don't. I don't have to. I don't have to playtest Feast for Odin, right? I mean, that was already taken care of by the designer, so you know, cool. So, but uh, but I do play there. I do play other people's games all the time, and uh, I, you know, what? I don't go out and play other people's role playing games very much because when I want to play a board game, like if I decide I'm going to play Erland, you know, or um, uh, Santorini or Conflict of Heroes. I can just sit down, learn the rules, and play it. But for a role-playing game, you kind of have to lock yourself into several months of playing, and you know, and and uh, and I just don't have the the interest enough to do that. So I stick to actually mostly. In fact, at the moment, I'm only playing role-playing games that I designed because I designed the games I like. But one of the reasons I play game, my own games too, besides the playtest thing, is that I make these games to appeal to a target audience of me. So naturally, <laughs> I like them. You know, I think they're fun. <laughs> and also, I have, I, I, I'm at heart, I'm kind of a showman. And so when I have people around, I want to show them how awesome my games are. Um, and, uh, and so I'll, I'll show them how to play the game and they'll play it. And they want to see it because I'm a game designer. They want to see what I've done. So all those things make me fairly likely to play some, play my own games with company. Though when I have friends that I've known for a long time, then we'll play whatever game because we don't, you know. I, I I don't have any anything to prove to them that so we'll say let you know it's, it's time to play uh, Dungeon Twister and they'll all sit down and play Dungeon Twister, which is not my game, but it's cool. Mm-hmm. And of course, by seeing what these other games do successfully or unsuccessfully, it really helps my games get better. One of the features we had at one of the features that game does that video game companies have. Mostly video game companies, not so much tabletop games, but video companies have the not invented here syndrome super badly, because in order to be able to make good games, they have to convince themselves that they are the best team in the world. Our artists, our designers, our programmers, we're tops. Every other game, therefore, must be inferior. And so they would see some other game, which is a perfectly good game, and they would um, 
they would belabor and mock it because it wasn't theirs. Unfair. Like, id Software had a really, really bad case of this. Like, I was working at id when the Unreal game came out, Unreal Engine, and boy, they hammered on how terrible that game was. I said, what is this game? This is an excellent first-person shooter. We should learn from them. And they were like, oh, no, they're bad because the way you build levels in it is you you have a big solid mass and you have to carve it out like a hollow place. I said, how does that make it? I don't understand why that makes it worse, but that was that was the kind of thing they came up with. <clears throat> you know, their monsters aren't good. I said, okay, let's say their monsters aren't as good. Well, we can still learn from the things they have that are good, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I play games that are video games, especially I'll play video games that are not perfect just to learn from them. So when I got to it's, to Ensemble Studios, um, where I was, instead of being like, uh, uh, fairly junior by their standards. I was a senior designer. I made sure that me and the other designers were, and the designers didn't have too much not invented here at, at Ensemble Studios, but of course the artists and programmers did because it's inherent to their nature, right? And I think they have to have a little bit of it in order to even be able to make a game. They have to think they're the best. Kind of the way that fighter pilots have to think they're the best or else they can't go up there and fight, you know? Whether or not they're the best doesn't matter. It's that you have to think you're the best. So we would constantly show them other people's games and say, look at how this game works. What are they doing badly? What can we improve on? What mistakes did they make we won't make now? And uh, and that was really, really helpful. So when I play a game like, uh, well, let's use the example I had at the very start, Feast for Odin. I like a lot, but one of the features about Feast for Odin that I think is a little weak is that, in effect, you're all playing solitaire. I mean, yeah, there's interaction, but there's not a lot of interaction. Like, if you're pulling ahead of me, Ivan, I can't do anything to uh to pull to you down bend. yeah i can't yeah I, I can't i can't yank you down you know so uh so that i think is a, it's still fun to play but uh after the first i mean i probably played it a, a, a dozen or more times but eventually i realized that i'm playing it solo yeah for sure and but it also depends on like i, I know a lot of people who prefer kind of that solo puzzly puzzliness <laughs> and and it depends on, on on your audience and like but but the the thing you mentioned about like kind of needing to feel that you're the best to to push yourself i've, yeah. I've definitely seen that in plenty of communities like um I, I i come from a classical music background and i've seen that there a lot um but in board games i really like i i like how for example like jamie stegmar he does like his favorite mechanisms and you can see that he plays a, a ton of games and i think that it's like super i think with board game guys like me and jamie and and uva and guys like that i think our deal is that we view ourselves, the board games, as the awesome elite group that everyone else is inferior to. And instead of lambasting other designers that are board games guys, we will lambast the video game guys or whatever instead. So we've kind of we've kind of widened our view to our own our own group. We we're more we're colleagues, and that also might partly be because of that we don't have the same need to have a um to to. to to wrangle and keep and use a big team. Like one of the features of video game design, which your players, your viewers may or may not find handy, is that um, <laughs> one of the main jobs of game designers <laughs> in a video game realm, and it's not often talked about, is to literally be the cheerleader for the game. You are in there constantly pitching how great this game is to be is going to be. You're getting the 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 uh, the programmers. This is going to be the best game ever. You know the artists. We're going to do the amazing art. You know we go to the producer and like, where well, game's good? And you're constantly you're whenever because programmers tend to be depressive personalities because I guess they hate the job. And so you're always making them be better. Artists have cool personalities, but they kind of feel apart from the rest of the team. So you're bringing them back of the team. This game is what's cool. Don't just do your game and sit there in a silo. Come be with us. So you're always cheerleading, okay? Plus, early on in the game, you have to get everyone excited about your game because if people are excited about the game they're doing, it's, it's simply a much better game. You can feel that in the design or in the, or in the art or in the plane. <laughs> so because in a video game thing, I'm constantly cheerleading the game, it makes sense that there would be a, a disinclination to play the other inferior games because this is the best game ever, you know. But uh, but in board but in board games, I don't have a giant team I need to cheerlead. You know, it's just it's me and the other guy, and I can and I can cheerlead these guys pretty easily, you know. So so it's not the it's not the same it's not the same relationship. Uh, another thing I don't have to do in in board games that I I'm glad I don't have to. One of the other features that game designers do a lot in video games. And um, this is also not talked about a lot, is that by its nature, okay, you have the programmers 
whose job is whose secret goal is to make the engine run as fast as possible and be super efficient, right? Then you have the artists who want to have the biggest, most cluttered art and animation as possible, which makes the engine engine chug and be less efficient. Okay, so the design and, and plus the artists are functioning with the, with different parts of their brain than the programmers. So naturally, there is some degree of inherent hostility between artists and programmers, and this is just how it is. And so the designer's job is to go in there and be the um, the the gear between them to inter to interface them to have them both like each other more. And you so you have to be the likable guy that makes the programmers like the artists and understand them and the artists like the programmers and understand, and then you're the guy that does all that work. You're, you're doing that. And that's one of the reasons that I, that may be another reason that we get along so well in the board, in the uh, uh, board game world, because by, because there's, I know there's a, um, there's a stereotype of the lone programmer who sits in his little tower and is really um, uh, socially inept. And there's some truth to it. And there's also some to the artist who's like, has his own vision and is also socially inept. And there's some truth to that, not as much. <laughs> Usually, artists are pretty sociable guys. They'll go out and have a beer with you, whatever. Programmers might go have a beer, but they might not talk about anything sensible. It depends on the programmer. But game designers in the video field are almost always easy guys to hang out with. Okay, and we have even if we're secretly horrible jerks, we put on a facade of being nice guys so that we can work with the programmers and designers, so the programmers and the artists that like each other, and so we can cheerlead. And so in the game, in the board game field, there's a lot of us came from those kind of backgrounds. We, I think we have some of those same characteristics. So we are used to putting on a outer view of, hey, we're likable, nice guys. Um, and so we tend to always be trying to, you know, be nice to people. So there's that. It's a good policy, I think. <laughs> I've noticed some design, board game designers that are, that are not as nice as I am to other people. Like at conventions, they'll, they'll blow off someone they don't want to talk to, which I never do. Um, so in some ways, I'm worse off because I don't get to blow off some guy I don't want to talk to. But I think, the, but these other designers I'm talking about, usually they didn't have a background in uh, video games where you have to learn to, to be social. So it's not entirely their fault that they were jerks. And I'm not naming names, so don't ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah <no. laughs> Jamie Stigmeyer. He's awesome. And not, and, not the, and not the letter games guys. Those guys are awesome. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, in my personal experience, uh, the, the most important quality of a game designer is really communica communication skills. Because again, it comes to this, like your game design doc needs to be readable, you know, your rule book needs to be good. And you ultimately need to be good to talk to people just to get things done and get people yes. excited about the game. But also, even if you're just, even if you don't have a game design doc because you didn't do it properly or didn't leave it, you still have to explain how to play the game to people so they understand it. So, I mean, that's a pretty fundamental skill of a game designer. If they don't understand your game, how are they going to play it? So, uh, and even even when we do explain it and make it clear how you do it, it I mean, it hap frankly, it happens all the time that they get something wrong. And then I go, oh, I got it. You know, and then that's it's, it's on me, not them. I have seen a designer get mad at players for playing a game wrong. Well, whose fault is that, dude? Why are they <laughs> playing it wrong? It's you. Speaking of people who don't get it, by the way, I have an anecdote for you. I, I've always wanted to share this one. But yeah, well, a few years back, a guy that owns a, a board game store uh, here in Bulgaria was uh, contacted by the press uh, and they did a phone interview. And they were asking about, okay, tell us about board games, the hobby of it, the, like what's it all about? And the, the guy was very positive. He was like, yeah, a lot of people get into it. It's a big hobby. Families do it. You know, guys do it. Girls do it, whatever. And the journalist was like, okay, how, how are the prices? And he was like, well, it's actually fairly affordable. Well, do you have something extreme? And he was like, well, I guess Cthulhu Wars is, is a very expensive board game compared to others. Uh, it costs 400 leva. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's our currency here. And they're like, ooh, what's it about? And, and he was like, well, you know, it's, it has to do with the universe of Howard Lovecraft and uh, demons and the occult. And then, I kid you not, the, the article they printed was children are losing their minds over a code games for 400 leva. <laughs> so you've actually had your, your fair share of like controversy, I guess. The Doom had a little bit of satanic panic yeah. and Cthulhu. And how, like you're such a nice guy, how, how do you actually communicate with people who just don't get it? Well... Part of the deal is that, um, like, for, during the 1990s, after Doom came out, 
Um, I had members of Congress hold copies of my game up in Congress and denounce it. So that was pretty awesome. And the thing is, what I have to, what I have to keep in mind is that these people aren't denouncing me because they actually think I'm bad. They're denouncing me for their own purposes or because they don't know what's going on. And um, and I just, you know, I don't, I guess I don't really try to convince them. I just like, as you know, I just want to do my games and they can play it or not. And if I try to, it, if I try to explain it, I say, look, I'm playing. If I'm playing a role-playing game, it's let's pretend for adults. You know, how is that bad? Uh, I don't know if you saw my video on Enemies of Fun on my YouTube channel, but that talks quite a bit about this exact subject. It explains why role-playing games are, like, keep you from committing suicide. Um, and I just, like, if someone comes to me and says, if kids play role-playing games too much, they'll drop out of school. I will say that is absolutely true. They probably should not. They, I mean, they shouldn't do that. They should stay in school. They should do their jobs. Role playing, role playing. No, no game, board games, nothing, video games, nothing should keep you from doing things that are more important in your life. That doesn't mean that they're inherently bad. I mean, there's a lot of things that can keep you from doing what you're supposed to do in your life. You could be gambling, right? You could be doing drugs. You could, I'm not saying that we're better than drugs or anything. I'm just saying that there's a lot of things that in your life, you have to keep a balance in everything. And games are, are no different in that regard. But given that, and given the fact that, that here I am sitting on my horse about how games shouldn't be everything, but in fact, in my life, games are everything because they're the full, it's my entire career is games. But even so, when I sit down to play games like with my grandchildren, I'm not trying to turn my grandchildren into little gaming nerds. I just want to have spend fun time doing things with them, and they want to do it by playing a game because grandpa designs games, so they want to play grandpa's games. So it's just it's 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 kind of a, a side effect. I presume if Grandpa was a fisherman, they'd want to go out on the boat, you know, and and fish. So uh, and that's fine with me. So, but I do think that playing a board game with kids has some useful things. You can teach the kids how to be a good sport when they lose by the fact that when you lose, you're a good sport. You know, you can teach the kids uh, a little bit about it teaches math. It teaches planning. It rewards thinking ahead and, and analyzing situations. And sometimes they may even learn a little bit of history, you know, kind of off the, off the cuff. So all those things are good about board games. And for example, I've got some videos up now where I'm where I'm playing Doom with my uh, my 11 year old granddaughter. Yeah, she's loving it. And part of the fun there is that she's enjoying spending time with Grandpa, doing Grandpa stuff. And part of it is that it's that she's using her brain you know, and trying things out. And she's also getting this fun kind of a little bit spooky experience. And so all those things are good. And so games do good things. And so I think the person that doesn't get it, I would just have to say, um, I mean, it's like, there's always people that hate horror movies, which I love horror movies. And they, and because they don't like something, therefore nobody can like it. That's kind of the deal. And this is, <laughs> these are the guys that have been the enemies of, of humanity ever since the start. I don't care if they like my games. I don't need them to like my games. All I want is for them not to censor my games. Okay, because censorship is the enemy of freedom. And censorship tragically works. And we saw that from Ho Chi Minh and Stalin and Hitler. You censorship, you censor things and it absolutely has the effect that the bad guys want it to have. I don't want to be censored. We only have a few minutes left, so. All right, that's completely fine. Um, I've got kind of two questions. One is, with all of your years' experience, how do you find that you keep being creative? Okay, so uh, two ways help me be motivated. One is the dream thing. I have, a, I keep having dreams, and they inspire me. Although not all being something that. The other is that um, when I, 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 I'm interested, I, I read books, I watch movies, I play other people's games, and these often I say, "Oh, I like this feature of this game." And then, then I, I keep it in the back of my mind as an idea I want to use someday. Another thing I do is I often will design stub. This is something Sid Meier does, too. He'll design, like, part of a game, then say, yeah, it's not going anywhere, and I put it aside. And so on my hard drive, I have, like, 50 stubs of games that never went anywhere. But if I'm stumped, I can go back and find one of these stubs and say, hey, let's look at it today with new eyes. Can I do something with it? And then so I have all these things kind of there. I probably have enough to last me till I die, so it's not really an issue for me. Maybe if I was starting out in my 20s, I'd be worried about it. And a couple times, I have been felt despairing. I said, oh, I'm out of ideas. I'll never do another game. And then I did Cthulhu Wars, you know. And so turned out that I, I did have another idea. 
Uh, one of the I actually got accused of this in the mid '80s um, by a friend of mine, Eric Goldberg, actually a friend, and he said, "What have you done since Call of Cthulhu? Maybe your creative thing is through." And I said, "Oh, maybe it is." And then he hired me to do the Ghostbusters role-playing game, and then it awarded, won a bunch of awards. So I figured I wasn't through. And hey, what's the worst case? Let's say I do run out of ideas, that I can spend the rest of my days playing with my grandkids and annoying my wife. And what could be better? Final question, which I asked, I, I try to ask all. Um... My guess, because I know a lot of people um, who listen or either want to do a Kickstarter or want to get into design is, um, what would you recommend to somebody who just wants to get in and has like no experience, but they know that they like games and they want to become part of the process? It is the easiest time ever to get into board games because of crowdfunding. And also because of Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. You can literally put your game out there on those things and have people try it out. It is like b before 2012, it was really hard to become a board. And my advice to people was that you can't do it effectively. So it's hopeless. I didn't say it quite like that. I tried to give them some encouragement, but basically it was hopeless, right? The only way, the only reason I could do it is because I had this great resume, which I built up over 30 years. But now you can do it. You can go on Tabletopia. You can go on Tabletop Simulator. You can go on... Uh, Kickstarter or other crowdfunding platforms and get your idea out there. And one of the things that to, do, to note here, though, is that, of course, your idea might fail. Well, that's a gift from God to you because now you know people don't like that idea. Go do something else. There's a lot of games I did where I would have loved to know that it was going to be a flop before I put money into it. You know, and that's where most things come in. So I would say go ahead and get the get that game going. Uh, make a I'd say make a physical copy of it. Play it. Once that's kind of working, you can put it on a, on a virtual system and get people to try it. And once that's working, then you can try it on uh, move it into crowdfunding if you need crowdfunding. Crowdfunding can be a double-edged sword, as I have, as me and Jamie Stegmeier have proven. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us. It was, it was awesome. <laughs>